Hello and welcome to the Master of Demon Gorge podcast. Today we're talking about Sun Yunxuan. Obviously, Taiwan has been a subject of discussion of late. Our good friend over at the China History Podcast recently did a whole series on the history of Taiwan. An article in the December issue of The Atlantic, written by former Obama aide Ben Rhodes, carried this headline: "Taiwan prepares to be invaded." Amidst all the feverish talk of war and peace, a major factor to consider is, of all things, semiconductors. Taiwan is the world's leader in the manufacturing of high-quality semiconductors, and the leader among leaders of Taiwanese chipmakers is TSMC, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company. Its founder, Morris Cheng or Zhang Zhongmo in Chinese, has famously said that without TSMC, the now ubiquitous smartphones would not have become available as soon as they did. And it's not just smartphones; all of modern technology depends on chips, from Tesla cars to the military drones now flying over Ukraine on both sides. And in the arena of chip making, TSMC leaves even the greatest of American tech companies in the dust. It is a unique beast, a unicorn in the true sense. So much so that in today's political situation, one reason Beijing may wish to attack Taiwan is to gain control of TSMC. But one reason it may not do so is that TSMC factories are such finely tuned operations that war will end up destroying them, killing the goose that lays the golden eggs. The Taiwanese nowadays often refer to TSMC as Hu Guo Shen Shan, literally the divine mountain that protects the nation. All of which begs the question, a question that is too often left unasked and unanswered in international reporting about Taiwan: How did this happen? How did a small island off the coast of mainland China, an island that, as of the mid 20th century, was economically backward, and soon thereafter became diplomatically isolated? Become the global leader in a high-tech industry and a crucial segment of the global economy. The story of Morris Cheng provides a hint of an answer to this question. Although we don't actually want to focus on Morris Cheng for this episode, let's talk a little bit about him just to set the stage. Morris Cheng, Zhang Zhongmo, was born in. 1931, in the city of Ningbo, in the province of Zhejiang, in China, that would be China's east coast, about halfway down. In 1949, right when the Chinese Civil War was reaching its denouement, young Morris moved 
to the United States to attend, of course, Harvard University. Soon thereafter, though, he transferred to MIT, where he obtained both his bachelor's and master's degrees. In 1958, he began working for Texas Instruments. After a few years, he went and got his PhD as well, this time from Stanford, before continuing on at Texas Instruments until eventually rising to the position of group vice president, responsible for semiconductor manufacturing worldwide. That made him the number three person at Texas Instruments and one of the highest ranking Asian American businessmen at the time. He then moved to General Instruments and served as chief operating officer there. During this time, it's worth noting, Morris Chang had never been to Taiwan. Although at the time, he wouldn't have thought of Taiwan as Taiwan, but as a part of the Republic of China. He would have understood the fact that he'd never been to Taiwan the way an American who's never been to Hawaii would think of Hawaii. Still America, just a part I haven't seen. In 1985, though, Morris Chang accepted an invitation to move to Taiwan. He was 54 years old then. The rest, as they say, is history. But today I actually want to focus on the man who invited him. Because you need to understand, having a comfortable American life and being a top businessman in the U.S. was the deepest dream of countless Chinese and Taiwanese at the time. Why would a man who already had that give it up to move to an island that was not only unfamiliar to him, but a perfect backwater of the global economy? What kind of man, what kind of invitation would be able to persuade him to do so? Sun Yunxuan was born in 1913, the second year of the Republic of China in the province of Shandong, also the east coast of mainland China, but a bit farther north from Zhejiang. His father studied law and became a judge under the Republic. He was posted to a judgeship all the way up north in the city of Harbin in Manchuria, a city with significant Russian influence. In 1925, Sun Yunxuan moved to Harbin to be with his father and entered the Russian school there meant for the children of Russian expatriates. He was the only Chinese student ever to attend this Russian school. In 1927, at 14, he entered the preparatory course for Harbing Institute of Technology, and later the HIT itself. The HIT at this time was also Russian-run. And so, Sun Yunxuan, through high school and college, learned to speak fluent Russian. In 1934, he graduated from HIT at the top of his class. 
During these years, though, as a lead up to the Second World War, Japan had taken control of Manchuria through the puppet government that was called Manchukuo, that nominally continued the Qing Dynasty that had been overthrown back in 1911. Because the Japanese didn't want Manchurian trained technicians to then go and work for the Chinese government. A graduate of HIT, like Sun Yunshen, was actually forbidden from returning to the Chinese heartland. He returned, nonetheless, managing to do so by pretending to be a trader rather than a new engineering graduate. In 1936, while working as a young engineer, he published a thesis that made an impression on top officials in. The Chinese capital at the time, Nanjing. This led to an invitation to go to Nanjing to join the central government's resources council. Sun Yunshen accepted the offer, which meant that when war broke out the following year in 1937, he was already attached to the central government. And when the government had to evacuate from Nanjing because of the war. And retreat westward, Sun Yunshen not only went with it, but was often in charge of packing up technical equipment and transporting it. You have to try to understand and try to imagine what the Chinese were doing here. Modernization had only begun in fits and starts in China over the previous several decades, and now Japanese invasion threatened. To destroy all the fruits of modernization, so the Chinese now were literally disassembling entire factories and power plants and moving them out of Japanese reach, so that China would continue to have an industrial base and an economic engine with which to fund the war effort. In one instance, Sun Yunshen. Disassembled a power plant, and then organized a team of mules to carry the parts on foot across mountainous terrains to reach safe territory. The epic journey took three months. In 1942, the ROC government sent Sun Yunshen to the U.S. to study with. The Tennessee Valley Authority, with the aim of training personnel to take up key positions after the war, and in 1945, Sun Yunshen duly returned to China. He was very nearly then sent to Manchuria, where he had studied. Right before he was to board the plane, a call came from the economic ministry, saying that. Several American engineers had come. Remember that at this time, hardly anyone in the ROC government would have spoken English. So they asked Sun Yunshen to stay a little longer, to host the Americans, to entertain them, as it were. Later on, as the political situation in Manchuria remained unstable, Sun Yunshen never ended up going there again. Years later, he would say that 
This one phone call to the airport changed his life. Had he gone to Manchuria at that time, in the ensuing civil war, he would probably have been killed or taken prisoner by the communists. In 1946, he was sent to Taiwan instead to run the Taiwan Power Company, or Tai Power for short. The ROC government had received Taiwan from the Japanese Empire in the wake of Allied victory in the Second World War. Though most of Taiwan's inhabitants were either ethnically Chinese or indigenous, because it was a Japanese colony and formed part of Japan's economic base, during the war Taiwan received its fair share of American bombs. The bombing significantly degraded. Taiwan's electricity output, so that Tai Power's grid was functioning at a quarter of what it was in 1943. Japanese engineers, upon leaving Taiwan, prophesied that within three months there would be no electricity in Taiwan at all. But they didn't count on Sun Yunshen. Within five months of taking over, working with local Taiwanese engineers, as well as mainland transplants like himself, and even some Japanese holdovers, Sun Yunshen had managed to rebuild power generation up to 80% of its former capacity. Through the next two decades, Sun Yunshen continued to rise and to impress both the ROC leadership as well as American officials. Deciding whether to aid Taiwan and which projects to fund, until he became the CEO of Tai Power. In 1964, though, the World Bank, which had been impressed by what Sun Yunshen was able to do at Tai Power, made him an offer out of left field. They offered him a job. In Nigeria, of all places, Nigeria's state power company was in need of a CEO, and the World Bank wanted an outsider in charge, in light of the rampant corruption in Nigeria. Sun Yunshen accepted, in part because he needed money. An ROC government official's salary. Was starting to be not enough for his family, and the World Bank paid better. I should be clear that Taiwanese cabinet ministers of that time didn't get paid that much. So he accepted and served for the next three years as the head of the Nigerian State Power Company. He battled corruption in this time, presumably easier for him to do as an outsider. And because the World Bank predicated aid to the Nigerian power company on Sun Yunshen, continued to serve as CEO, and electricity generation in Nigeria went up significantly during his tenure. But needless to say, Nigeria had deeper problems than electricity. Starting in early 1966. A series of coups 
and unrest began, ultimately leading to the Biafra War of 1967 to 1970. Sun Yung-shen happened to be visiting family in Taiwan when the first coup occurred in January 1966. Out of concern for Sun Yung-shen's safety, the then economic minister in Taiwan, Li Guoding, urged him simply to stay in Taiwan and not go back. Li Guoding, incidentally, was another architect of Taiwan's rapid growth. And like Sun Yung-shen, he was a man of science. In fact, he had studied physics under Lord Ernest Rutherford at the Cavendish Lab at Cambridge University. But that's another story for another time, and perhaps we'll do an episode just on Li Guoding. Chiang Kai-shek then called Sun Yung-shen in to speak to him personally, instructing him to return to Nigeria to complete his World Bank contract. Sun Yung-shen did as the president told him and finally returned to Taiwan in 1967. That year, Chiang Kai-shek also made Sun Yung-shen Taiwan's Minister of Transportation. Then, two years later, he became economic minister. The 1970s, with the oil shocks, were a difficult time for much of the global economy. Taiwan had the additional misfortune of being forced out of the United Nations in 1971. So, starting in 1972, the ROC government sought to push ahead with a series of plans for economic development. Sun Yung-shun suggested that Taiwan should establish a semi-official and semi-private entity in the form of a corporation that would be able to do things a wholly state-controlled entity couldn't. Many voices within the ROC government at the time actually opposed Sun Yung-shun's idea, believing that semi-private corporations would lead to problems later, and setting a president like this was like opening Pandora's box. After Sun Yung-shun heavily lobbied for it, the legislature finally approved the plan with a bare majority of the votes, establishing the Industrial Technology Research Institute, which, in the end, helped to pave the way for Taiwan's tech industry. Famously, Sun Yung-shen then hit upon the idea of semiconductors. There's something comical about the historic meeting where Taiwan's fate was arguably decided, because it took place at a humble soy milk shop. I should be clear, in Taiwan, the term soy milk shop is really more like an everyday breakfast joint. Kind of a diner. Yes, it'll have soy milk, but it'll also have traditional breakfast items such as the bao dumplings and turnip cakes. Proprietors typically are also happy to make you a Taiwanese-style omelette. The important thing to know is that it is emphatically a humble kind of place. 
At 7 a.m. on February 7, 1974, at Xiao Xingxing Soy Milk Shop in Taipei, Economic Minister Sun Yunshun met with a Chinese-American semiconductor engineer then working at the Radio Corporation of America, or RCA. By the end of the one-hour meeting, Sun Yunshun had grown convinced that Taiwan's future lay in semiconductors. So convinced, Sun Yunshun then pushed through a plan to designate a large area in the city of Xinzhu as a science park, where semiconductor manufacturing facilities would eventually be built. In 1978, with Jiang Jingguo, son of Chiang Kai-shek, rising to the presidency, Sun Yunshun became head of what's called the Executive Yuan in Taiwan, essentially the Prime Minister. Ultimately, roughly over the period of Sun Yunshun's premiership in 1977 to 1984, per capita income in Taiwan tripled without driving up inflation. This is why we call it the Taiwan economic miracle. It was during these years as well that Sun Yunshun crossed paths with Morris Cheng. Texas Instruments had decided to lay off a large number of workers in their Taiwanese operation due to pessimism about Taiwan's future. As foreign investors required government approval to operate in Taiwan at the time, retrenchment was something that Texas Instrument needed to tell the government about. So, Morris Cheng had to fly to Taiwan to meet with Sun Yunshen to deliver the bad news. To his surprise, Sun Yunshen didn't seem too upset about the massive layoff. All he wanted to talk about was semiconductors. In the ensuing years, Sun Yunshen and former economic minister Li Guoding repeatedly sought to recruit Morris Chang to move to Taiwan. At one point, Sun Yunshen told Morris Chang that the sky was the limit in terms of compensation. Ask what he thought he deserved to be paid, and Sun Yunshen promised that the government would pay it. Morris Chang didn't quite believe it, and he politely asked whether the economic minister actually understood how much a top executive at a top U.S. corporation actually made. In reality, Sun Yunshen didn't understand. When Morris Chang gently explained the facts about stock options and so on, Sun Yunshen let the matter drop. In reality, the ROC government couldn't pay that kind of money. Although later he pushed through salary reforms in Taiwan to make the sort of compensation Morris Cheng wanted possible. Doing so made Taiwan a much more attractive destination for top technical and managerial talent. After years of persuasion, and presumably after all his stock options in America vested, Morris Cheng ultimately accepted the offer 
to move to Taiwan. This was in 1985. Soon thereafter, he created TSMC. And he, along with other leading engineers, built Taiwan's semiconductor industry. Unfortunately, a year before Morris Chang finally made his move in 1984, Sun Yunshen suffered a stroke. Until then, many believed that he could become the next president of the ROC. But the stroke paralyzed him. And in the wake of it, Sun Yunshen gave up his official positions, although Jiang Jingguo insisted on keeping him on as a presidential advisor. Because of his undeniable achievements while in office, Sun Yunshen retained the title of advisor to the president for many years, even after democratic transition, even after the Democratic Progressive Party succeeded in defeating the KMT in elections and winning power. Finally, Sun Yunshen died in 2006. When all is said and done, Sun Yunshen was, of course, only a man, only mortal. I'm sure he made plenty of mistakes along the way. I'm sure not all of his policy choices were correct. But he was substantially responsible for Taiwan's astonishing economic development. He was substantially responsible for Taiwan becoming the world's number one destination for semiconductor manufacturing. He was substantially responsible for making the Taiwanese fairly wealthy. Wealthy enough to attend schools in America and then come back to criticize old-school KMT officials such as Sun Yunshen. Even if Internationally, his name is not well known today. The fact is that we live in the house that he built. And I don't just mean we, the Taiwanese. This has been MODG. Thank you for listening.